Lucien and Nicole for hosting me. And, um, I'm honored to be here. I've been to South Africa a number of times, but and I've been to Rhodes a few times, but this is my first time speaking to a gathering of people here, and I uh, am honored to do so, and also to the um, Neil Agate Labor Studies Unit. Um, this will become obvious. I'm writing a book. Every academic's writing a book. Um, I'm writing a book. This is the title, if you, I asked Lucian, if you have a better title after you listen to me talk, it's not yet set, right? Um, but I like it, Dock Worker Power, Race, Technology, and Unionism in Durban and San Francisco in the United States. The three themes in my book, some of which I will highlight today, is um, that dock workers promoted racial equality inside their workplaces, industries, their own organizations, but also more generally in their cities and nations. Um, dock workers sometimes fight for social justice on behalf of people in other countries, Yeah, what I call solidarity activism, and I'll talk a little about that today, but not as much. Those two themes sort of fit together, how dock workers use their power on behalf of causes beyond their workplaces. But I also am really interested in um, the effects of technology on workers and industries. Why? Because it matters. And um, in the industry of marine transport or shipping, that's often called containerization. Um, when the traditional mode of loading and unloading ships was transformed in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s so that now these trucks and trains and ships move these metal boxes via cranes and revolutionize world trade. Um, why is there globalization in the world today? Containerization, actually, is one of the single most important components <coughs> of the entire revolution in global capitalism in the last generation or two, right? And I study essentially how that affected the workers in the industry, right? Um, although I'm not talking about that today, happy to talk about it during um, questions. Um, why do I study the South African dock workers in Durban and the American dock workers in San Francisco? There is, in fact, a discipline called comparative South African and U.S. history in history, in literature, in other um, fields, because there's lots that our nations share in common. In 1966, Robert F. Kennedy, the younger brother to the former president, the late John F. Kennedy, visited Cape Town for, um, and then um, the rest of the country for about a week, 1966. He was killed himself two years later, right? On that visit, he met um, Albert Latuli, um, went to Soweto, was actually invited by uh, Nusas. Right? Um, and when he came to the country at that time, he was really considered the most, the leading liberal, not radical, but sort of left liberal figure in American politics. And when he gave a speech at the University of Cape Town, he said this, among other things, <clears throat> I came here, Cape Town, because of my deep interest and affection for a land settled by the Dutch in the mid-17th century, then taken over by the British, and at last independent. A land in which the native inhabitants were at first subdued, but relations with whom remain a problem to this day. A land which defined itself on a hostile frontier. I'm thinking of <laughs> this place in particular, uh, Gramstown. A land which has tamed rich natural resources through the energetic application of modern technology a land which once imported slaves and now must struggle to wipe out the last traces of that former bondage. I refer, of course, to the United States of America. Right? Um, now, I don't know if he wrote that speech, but it's actually a brilliant summation of why South Africa and the United States uh, is a worthy field of investigation. Is because, in fact, our two nations share much in common, um, even though there are obvious differences. 
goes without saying that uh, the United States and South Africa are very different from each other. The most obvious difference always is the demographics, where African Americans make up less than 15% of the population of the US, but where black Africans make up, what, 80 or so percent um, in uh, South Africa, right? And so there are differences we always acknowledge, right? Um, but we also want to think about what makes these things similar. I study dock workers, or dockers, as they're frequently called here. Um, different terms in different nations, often stevedores, which actually comes from the Spanish originally. Um, in the United States, traditionally and still, people refer to longshoremen, people who work along the shore. We can use different terms. They mean roughly the same category of workers. right? Um, to me, the industry is interesting. Why I'm writing a second book on this um, seemingly obscure subject right, um, is because they're so important. It is because the loading and unloading of ships, the movement of cargo around the world, is, as Lucian said, um, central to global trade and central, central therefore, to global capitalism. Right? Um, and so these workers matter. They have power, potentially, because their industry um, is central to the uh, entire global economy. Right? Um, however, traditionally, these workers didn't have much power. And the work that they did was actually quite hard. Um, Heavy manual labor, I forgot, I apologize to transfer this into kilograms. You know, carrying one to 300 kilogram sacks, right? Um, I actually watched, not last week in Durban, um, they still occasionally load sacks of sugar and rice that um, look quite heavy, yeah? Um, aboard a moving vessel often. Now, these workers are often called casual. That's interesting because that term is still widely used, yeah, in South Africa and many places, meaning irregular work. Um, you get hired by the ship, maybe by the shift, the day, but you may not have work again in the future, right? Or you may, but you actually don't know, right? Um, by contrast, I have a job where I have a contract, right? Um, I, have, I work from year to year or even longer. Um, that's not casual work, right? Work's generally paid poorly cause considered unskilled. Um, why paid poorly? Uh, lots of competition, huge labor surpluses. Yeah, um, lots of people can do this work if they have to. I'm looking at a bunch of people in this room who appear to be strong. If you had to, you could lift and load. Yeah, um, may not be happy about it, but actually could do it, right? Um, there's in fact more people than there are jobs, right? Um, uh, as for the scale content, well, uh, I always like to point out that loading lots of different types of commodities into a ship's hold, um, every ship being actually different, every commodity being different, making sure that the ship is balanced so it doesn't sink, is actually incredibly skilled work, right, despite the label of unskill. Dangerous work, people die all the time, people get injured all the time, right? I've heard, how many of us have hurt ourselves in our kitchens, right? <laughs> you know, like, where there's in fact nothing significant going on, right? Um, do it aboard a moving ship in bad weather um, at night, and you can see how those things could easily result in injuries. And often long ships, uh, shifts, um, a phrase, the ship must sail on time, right? Um, or another phrase that lots of us use, time is money. Right? Why is time money? It's because you're paying people by the hour. You're paying to have that ship in dock for another day, etc. Right? For all these reasons, um, very hard work. And I'm going to focus in particular on two ports. I like these photos for obvious reasons. Seems like similar sorts of workers doing similar sorts of work, one in Durban and one in San Francisco. Right? Um, and so this is all pre-container, sometimes now called traditional dock work or break bulk. You can actually go back to ancient Egypt several thousand years ago, and there are images 
from um, Pharaonic Egypt of dock workers basically loading stuff onto barges on the Nile River, right? Like the work essentially hadn't changed for thousands of years um, up until containers, right? When there's this radical shift. Um, my work actually straddles both, yeah? Um, although I'm not talking about that so much today. Oops. So let me talk about San Francisco and then I'll talk about Durban. The workers I study in San Francisco belong to a union called the International Longshore and Warehouse Union. Used to be called the International Longshore Men's and Warehouse Men's Union. Um, most work has been gendered throughout history and, and still often. But this union, 20 years ago, actually decided to de-gender their name, despite the fact that it's still overwhelmingly male-dominated. Very unusual, somewhat controversial, but nevertheless done. Right? Like, uh, so the name has changed, right? I study San Francisco. Historically, San Francisco is the most important port on the US West Coast. But all of us have heard of Los Angeles, or LA, and LA is now bigger, much more important to the global economy. But historically, that wasn't the case. If you look at this map of the United States West Coast with the Pacific Ocean to the left, you would go, where am I going to put the best harbor? Right? Where am I going to create the best city for movement of goods? And the answer is obvious. It's the place that's the most protected from the elements, from storms, right? Um, the San Francisco Bay, right? And so not surprisingly, right, they often say, I'm not a geographer, but I love the phrase, geography is destiny, right? Um, it is the case with most of the world's great cities, right? Um, most of them are port cities, and most of them are port cities because they, in fact, have good natural <coughs> right? Um, so too San Francisco here, saw on this peninsula, and then on the inside part is... Uh, where the docks were. Um, and this is where they discovered gold in 1849. And this was suddenly an instant city. This, you could do another study on Johannesburg and San Francisco, and maybe I will in the future. Um, but like, uh, essentially, the proximity to the gold fields creates a city of 100,000 people in two years. Right? Um, just one generation, actually, before that same thing happened to Johannesburg. Later on, San Francisco's importance is secured by the fact that the United States is the most powerful empire in the 20th century, right? Um, what do they do? The United States builds the Panama Canal, right, um, in order to reduce the time to ship cargo and humans between the Atlantic and the Pacifics, um, San, and that ships were coming up the bay, uh, to San Francisco. The United States conquered the Philippines, took them from the Spanish, was the American gateway into the East Asian market, yeah, um, as uh, the United States sought more trade and investment. Um, Americans often see itself as an, uh, an Atlantic power, um, but San Francisco is essentially the key to it being a Pacific power also. Right? Um, so that's a little on San Francisco. Um, I apologize if you all knew this about San Francisco. Um, in the 1930s, this man on the right, Harry Bridges, nicknamed The Nose, um, an immigrant from Australia, um, had been in America for about a decade, helps create a union that's ultimately called the ILWU, um, here on the left marching after um, several strikers had been murdered by the San Francisco police in 1934. Um, the union that Bridges helped create um, became the most powerful union, left-wing union, in the United States in the mid-20th century, the union that I study and I'm talking about right now. Um, Bridges had been a member of the Industrial Workers of the World, the first union that I studied, um, often uh, accused of being a communist. He denied it, although there's some good evidence to suggest that he's lying, and, or now dead, but that he might have been a communist. Um, 
There's lots of Trotskyists in this union too. My, my point being is actually, they have a big tent, what often in CP history is called the popular front, that essentially there's a bunch of leftists in the union, including Bridges. He often said that uh, I share 95% in, com in common with the communists, I'm just not a member, for whatever that's worth. Um, what did they do with this ideology? And after this group of workers in San Francisco and every other US West Coast port organized a union in the mid-1930s, they became very quickly, quote, lords of the docks. Their wages went up a bunch. The hours that they work went down a bunch. And they created a system of hiring that the union controlled. So if a company wanted a ship worked, they called up the union hall, and the people who dispatched people to work were union members elected by their peers to assign workers. And when they assigned workers, they did it on what was referred to as a low man out system. 100% men at this time in the industry. So there's 20 of us. We all show up for work that day. You don't have to show up at any day if you don't want to, which is one of the casual aspects of the job that they retained purposely because Sometimes you don't want to go to work, right? Um, but if you do show up for work, we all show up for work, who gets the job first? Whoever has the fewest amount of hours that quarter of the year, right? Low man out, right? And so they put into practice this ideology of equality of opportunity, right? Not equality of condition, right? Because people, in fact, have work different amounts of hours, have different whatever, but equality of opportunity, right? Um, but um, that's the, the most practical example of how they essentially put their socialist ideal into a very practical, where? Now, I'm not talking about that so much, although that's fascinating. I want to highlight another aspect of their socialist practice, which was um, being anti-racist, right? In a time, the 1930s, 40s, 50s, when um, it was legal to discriminate based upon race in the United States, as well as culturally common for whites to think of themselves as superior to others. This union, which was 99% white when it started, actively encouraged um, uh, the integration of its ranks and actively recruited um, people of color, which in the US meant primarily African Americans, but also sometimes meant Asian Americans and what we would call Latinos or Mexican Americans and other people or Spanish speaking immigrants from south of the US of A. Why do they do this? Because they believe in equality and they believe that all workers share something in common, which is that they're workers, right? Um, uh, and that is why they use the old wobbly, or IWW saying, an injury to one is an injury to all. Um, of course, this is also the motto of Kosatu and other unions here in South Africa. It comes from the US. It actually uh, hails from the United States. Um, of course, it's also just smarter to be anti-racist if your enemy is the boss, right? Um, because you want to be strong. You want as many people on your side. You don't want to have a group of people who don't like each other so that they basically scab on each other, right? Um, and so it's stupid to exclude blacks because then the employers hire blacks, right? If you perhaps go on strike, right? And so there's pragmatic reasons to be inclusive. You may not like people who are different than you, but there's also ideological reasons, right? Um, and both are factors, I would say, in the case of the LWU. Do all people in the LWU get along? Of course not, right? Um, there are racial tensions in this union, despite their rhetoric and constitution, yeah? Um, so for instance, in Portland, another port in um, their union, there weren't any blacks, right? <laughs> you know, like, it was just known that this local didn't tolerate 
didn't play, right? Um, LA, which at that time is smaller than San Francisco, they basically did a, a number of things to make sure that there were not many blacks in their union, right? And so some of the locals are better than other. I study what is widely seen as essentially the best quote unquote union when it comes to race. Um, and, you know, why didn't the international push these locals harder? You know, the union is somewhat decentralized and believes in democracy, right? Um, and so if the majority of members of a local say they want X, well, is the international going to say you have to do Y? Well, um, maybe yes. Maybe, in fact, you push on this issue. Or maybe you actually compromise, right? Um, and so what happens in this union is sometimes they push and sometimes they compromise. So the effect that the, the, the victims are often people of color who find fewer opportunities to access the union in these two ports in particular, which are important. In San Francisco, however, a different story. Um, Local 10 is the union I study. It's in San Francisco. Basically, uh, a major increase in the number of blacks into San Francisco in the 30s, excuse me, in the 40s during World War II. And after the war, even though the amount of traffic in the, in the port declines, they decide basically to share the poverty, right? Because they, what they could have done is reduce the number of members in the union. And those would have been, the people they would have kicked out would have been the most recent who joined, what's called last hired first fire, right? Um, but they chose not to deflate their numbers and instead share poverty, right? Because remember, the low man out system means that if there's more people who report for work, that means you're going to get fewer jobs, right? Um, and so there was, a very, there was a meeting, actually, about this in 1949, where they just talked about some people wanted to actually reduce the roles, which is not inherently racist, but would have the practical effect of basically kicking out most of the blacks, right? But they chose not to, right? And later, actually, the port traffic increased, and it ended up not being a problem. But they essentially chose in this important meeting, of which there are no minutes, <laughs> although there, um, I have some reports about it, um, this occurred. Subsequently, this union became black majority. And uh, you know, therefore, started electing blacks to all sorts of leadership in the local. And then they did a number of other things. So this union integrates blacks, becomes black majority when it, there was very few blacks at the start. Then they start pushing other locals to integrate also. So uh, in San Francisco, there's other dock workers who work as clerks. They basically keep uh, the records, right? Um, they were all white. Um, but in the 60s, they push to fight against racial discrimination um, with some blacks taking the leadership role, but also this white man named Jimmy Herman, pictured here with a Mexican-American labor leader called Cesar Chavez, um, to basically say, look, we're not going to actually accept it. And so in the Bay Area, they actually pushed against racism, even though they didn't always push elsewhere. I wrote an article about this recently. Um, they took some of their pension funds and um, in a neighborhood that had been gentrified and a lot of the poor people, basically their housing eliminated, they took some of their pension funds and built a housing cooperative, means that the people who reside in it own it, um, and made it affordable to working class people and insisted it would be ethnically and racially integrated. The first housing complex of its sort in San Francisco like this uh, in 1963. They supported students who went on strike and faculty who went on strike. Um, San Francisco State, not a famous university in the United States, a non-elite university. What would be the equivalent? Sort of like Nelson Mandela Metropolitan University, right? Like, uh, um, and um, when black students went on strike to demand basically black studies, um, the man on the right was a leader of that. He was a student at the time. He was the son of a dock worker, later joins the union, um, himself became an activist within the union. I study Local 10. Yeah. 
I'm just giving you examples, right, of the social justice movements that this union promotes. Um, uh, one more example is um, the man on the right um, named Joe Morris um, was a uh, American Indian, a uh, member of something called the Blackfoot Tribe, which is in what's in Montana. Well, you take a sip. Is that the same Clarence Thomas who later became uh, a Supreme Court justice? Yeah. No, he's often referred to as the other Clarence Thomas. Oh, really? right? Like, uh, and so there's a Clarence Thomas who's famous, um, who's a Supreme Court justice, African American, and considered very conservative. Right? Um, that man is a communist. Right? Um, <laughs> other side of the spectrum. Same name, same skin hue. Not much else in common. Right? Like, actually, around the same age. Um, and uh, they're, they play with that sort of name a lot, right, um, because of the obvious. Joe Morris, pictured here on the right, was a Indian member of Local 10. 1969, there was an island off the coast of San Francisco called Alcatraz. It's sort of famous. It was a prison island. It's sort of like Robin Island, except that the prisoners there were not political prisoners. They were just common criminals, right, murderers thieves, whatever, right? Alcatraz had been shut down because it was very expensive to maintain a prison offshore. Um, and so local Indians in San Francisco said that according to US treaties with different Indian nations, if the federal government, if the United States no longer uses this land, it reverts back to the original owners. So we're gonna take back Alcatraz, right? Um, sort of a very clever strategy of these radical young Indians in the 60s. Um, now the problem with Alcatraz is that it's a lifeless rock, unlike Robben Island, where you can grow food. Um, you know, you need to ship everything onto this island, right? Um, and so Indian Joe, as his nickname was, um, basically got up here and arranged with the union and uh, the local um, uh, port authorities so that they could use this place to sh ferry water, food, and humans back and forth to the island. Um, without that, actually, the occupation of Alcatraz, which lasted 18 months, wouldn't have happened, right? They would have not had water. And finally, Martin Luther King Jr., probably the most famous African-American activist. Um, maybe now Kanye West is a more famous African-American. Um, but like uh, Martin Luther King Jr. visits Local 10, San Francisco's Union Hall. Why? Uh, becomes an honorary member because he uh, says, well, you know, um, he referred to unions as um, the, the first great anti-poverty organization, right? Um, workers in unions are paid better because they have the collective ability to drive up their wages, right? Last thing I'll talk about with uh, San Francisco is that a number of times members of this union refused to unload cargo from South Africa to protest apartheid. First in 1962, um, this photograph coming from the union newspaper. Um, this woman actually, a white American woman, was friends with Albert Latuli, had been here in the late 50s, was banned from returning to South Africa, moved back to the US and was a leading uh, anti-apartheid activist for until the 1980s. Um, that's her leading this picket. These are dock workers who are refusing to cross this picket line, which they do symbolically for 24 hours, right? Um, when a Dutch ship comes in to San Francisco Harbor, um, I'm pretty sure this is the first time a labor union in the US had engaged in such action, right? Um, they do so again in the 70s, and then in 1984, when this ship, also a Dutch ship, comes into San Francisco Harbor, days after Ronald Reagan is re-elected, which is considered to be a um, low time for American progressive politics. Um, they refuse to unload the South African cargo uh, for 11 days as hundreds of people rally around the pier. Um, and this is actually a big national news story in the USA um, for that week. Yeah. Um, six years later, Nelson Mandela is freed from prison, comes to the US, 
um, after visiting Cuba, right? Um, and um, goes to Oakland and um, at Oakland Stadium before 60,000 cheering Americans spends 10% of a speech talking about this action uh, from 1984, right? Um, so uh, that's what I'll talk about. They continue doing these sorts of things, but you get the idea, right, about um, San Francisco and social justice. Durbin is the other half of my story. I'm suggesting that Durbin dock workers are very militant, have a long history of labor activism. That's actually not controversial. Um, not well known, but not controversial. Um, and most Durban dock workers are from KwaZulu, although some are from Pondo land, um, but mostly Zulus, a uh, few Pondo. Um, of course, black workers are not allowed to be in unions legally, are not allowed to legally strike. Um, nevertheless, despite these significant limitations in the 20th century, are able to organize often very effectively. Um, and by the 1970s, black worker activism is really central to the struggle against apartheid. You probably know this part, but Durban, pictured down here, um, is the best harbor in the southeast coast of Africa. Right? Um, the Portuguese already had Lorenzo Marquez, now Maputo. The Brits are looking for a place on the east coast. Durban is actually an obvious place. If you've ever seen Durban, um, it's got this narrow mouth, but then opens up right into this lovely harbor. Beautiful looking also, and is a great place right, um, to be protected from the elements as you load and unload ships. Um, also relatively close to Johannesburg and, and the reef, right, as once the railroads start to move. Busiest port in South Africa, busiest port in Africa for many decades. Um, there's actually uh, maybe the second busiest port in Africa if you include, as I like to, Egypt, right, um, where the Suez Canal um, is actually a busier place. Just like American dock workers in San Francisco, South African dock workers in Durban load and unload ships in a very traditional way before containerization. The system uh, in Durban is referred to as tot labor. I don't speak Afrikaans, and so like, you can apologize, or I apologize for my failure to pronounce um, Afrikaans uh, words well. But um, this is the term for the labor system. Curious, actually, because it's Shepstone who really um, creates this system, and he was a British colonial um, authority, not a uh, Dutch one, but nevertheless, that's the term widely used. <coughs> Um, we start to see dock workers organizing actually on the west coast in Cape Town in, after World War I. Um, in the aftermath of a big strike, a union is formed called the Industrial and Commercial Workers Union of Africa. Um, your friend and colleague here, Lucien van der Waal, actually researches the ICU. Um, I was asking him earlier about this, but their motto also is an injury to one, is an injury to all. I would like to think it's because of the Wobblies, even though he suggests it might be some other path. Durban dock workers, I really studied the World War II and post-War II era. Um, this is a nice aerial view of Durban Harbor. The old city, this is where most of the cargo used to be unloaded here at what's called the point. The bluff over here, largely undeveloped. Um, nowadays, this is the most busy part of the harbor for cargo, um, where the containers are really loaded and unloaded. Right? Before containers, this is how it's done. Right, You load up basically a pallet um, uh, or a a sling, right, um, lifted um, with uh, basic uh, cranes off the ships. Starting in the 40s, we see a wave of strikes happening. For a while, led by this man named Zulu Pungula, um, who's uh, himself uh, from southern KwaZulu and um, is widely seen as the most outspoken leader in um, Durban. 
what do the employers do when dock workers go on strike? They fire the whole workforce, right? Um, go back to KwaZulu, replace, right, with an entirely new workforce. Um, and Zulu Pangula banned from Durban. Strikes continue in the 50s. I sort of am trying to move a little quicker. Uh, but in the late 50s, we see a wave of apartheid, <coughs> um, resistance to apartheid, led by uh, the South African Congress of Trade Unions, which is essentially the ANC-affiliated labor um, organization in the 50s. Um, they engage in what were referred to as stayaways, which is strikes, right? Um, stay away from work, right? Um, that became very important in the late 50s. Dock workers are not members of SAC2, but nevertheless also join in these stayaways, right? Um, coordinated clearly, timed identically, yeah. Um, dock workers use their casual status in a very clever way. They're not breaking the law when they refuse to work because they don't have work, right? They have to actually go to report to work, and if there's work, they get maybe picked, right? And so if they don't report for work, they're not striking. And so therefore, they cannot be punished. They cannot be sent to jail. They cannot be deported back to rural KwaZulu, right? And so the tot labor system, the casual labor system, actually is a source of power in some ways because they can coordinate, what if we all not show up for work, right? Um, then suddenly we've got some power. And this actually happens time and again. It's no secret, right? You see essentially employers and even the local newspaper complaining about these sort of coordinated stayaways. As a result, dock workers basically find that this power is taken from them. So in 1959, um, casual labor is eliminated in Durban. It's referred to as decasualization, where they create a corporation called the Durban Stevedoring Labor Supply Company that supplies all the labor needs. So if this guy is a, has a ship coming into harbor, he calls up the DSLSC and says, I need a couple gangs, right? They then send him labor, right? Um, all work is consolidated under a single, essentially, uh, manager, right? Um, they still um, are uh, not guaranteed work, but they only have now a single employer, so they cannot play employers off each other, they cannot rep not report for work, etc. This is clearly done in order to weaken dock workers who had effectively, essentially, um, used their casual status. They still live in hostels. These hostels are located near the work, near the point. This actually occurs into the 1990s. And so it's a very interesting sort of atypical thing for apartheid South Africa in the 1950s and especially 1960s as more and more black spots are eliminated from cities. The employers basically resist because there's talk that we're going to move all these thousands of black dock workers to Kwamashu, which is uh, essentially the new township built in the 1950s. Um, but employers say, we don't want to have our workers moved 15 kilometers away because the ships must sail on time. We often have work at night and on weekends. And so even though the city is white, and Durban also has that problem we call Indians, right? Because a lot Indians are also not cleared fully from the city center, um, that um, these blacks aren't. So they're at the point, right? Um, and even into the 70s, there's complaints about this. But essentially, the, the economy trumps apartheid, right? Like, uh, so that the shipping industry is stronger than the local uh, Bantu authorities, if you will. Dockers continue to fight um, later on. I'll try to move a little more quickly. Um, some dock workers. Oh, okay, thank you. Um, dock workers, some belong to Mkunto Wasizwe. Um, in Natal, in particular, the labor movement supplies most of the MK, MK cadre as well as regional leadership, right? Um, 
The dock worker among those, among the five, was Kernikum de Luvu uh, here. Now there's a highway named after him in northern uh, Durban at the time. Uh, he was, of course, uh, banned and sent to Robben Island. Um, I'm going to sort of talk a little about the late 1960s and early 70s. And so as many of us know who study South African history, in 1973 there was an important wave of strikes, early 73. Um, and the question always is, is like, where did this come from? Oh, we have this wave of Durban strikes, right? Uh, I am going to suggest that not only were the Durban strikes important, but that the dock workers are really important for the Durban strikes. So that people like Kernikum Deluvu or Billy Nair, who's a SACTU activist and an MK leader as well and a Durbanite, um, are really important to this cause, right? So in 1969, a thousand dock workers go on strike. The largest strike that year, and the largest strike for a number of years in South Africa among blacks, period, right? Um, there were almost no strikes from the mid-60s into the late-60s into the early-70s, right? Um, sort of shocking, right? Uh, 1971, they threatened strikes, but don't go on strike. They, I should actually note that they were... Um, 1,500 workers were fired in 1969. They replaced them entirely. But two years later, they're again seeming to uh, threaten a strike. Um, this evidence is sort of spotty. Historians love paper trails, right? Uh, there's very little way in the paper trail um, to um, study these matters. We can know a couple of obvious things. One, these people work together and live together. It means they have lots of time to sort of talk about basically what they're going to do, strategize, plot, etc. Um, we know that these workers are almost entirely Zulus and that generally a homogenous group of people are more likely to get along and organize than a group of people that are diverse, right? Um, and that includes not only ethnicity, but also gender. It's an all-male workforce, and so maybe it's harder to organize a, in a male-female workplace, but actually all-male workplace may be a bit easier. And we know that there were um, activists who were sort of talking, not writing things down, um, I don't think that SACTU was organizing this workplace. There are some suggestions that SACTU is around. I would say yes, they're around, but I don't think they're not creating this. This is, I'd say, driven by the dock workers themselves among their own networks. And we know that in late 1972 that there was a big push for dock workers to get a raise. Um, and in October of 1972, dock workers go on strike. Right? Um, this is an image of the police showing up on the waterfront in 72. So a lot of us have heard of Rick Turner, famous white intellectual and activist um, who was subsequently banned um, after the Durban strikes in 1973. Steve Biko, also living in Durban at the time, also banned. Biko didn't pull the strikes, didn't create the strikes, but nevertheless the government is trying to figure out who's in charge and banning essentially the leaders. We also know that a number of white student university activists Dave Hempson being the most important um, in the waterfront are also banned, right? Um, and we know that even though the government said that it had nothing to do with the strike, that they granted a raise of nearly 40% right after the strike happened, right? Um, I would suggest that it was because of the strike that this 40% raise is granted, but like um, the government said otherwise. Um, and we know that this is October of 1972, right? And we also know, actually, there was another small strike in December of 1972. Uh, and then we know it's Christmas, right? Um, when lots of migratory workers go home um, to visit family, right? And then we know in early January of 1973, right after, essentially, the Christmas holiday, this big strike wave begins in Durban. Um, first in a place called Coronation Brick, then in um, dozens of other factories in January, February, and March of 1963. 
Some Indians were involved in this strike. Many of Indians were working class people and some were active unionists. Um, but most of these strikers were black, right? Um, often referred to as the beginning of the Durban moment, right? We've got Biko in Durban, we've got Returner in Durban, we've got this first big wave of um, labor activism in Durban. And I am uh, sort of, one of the things I'd like us to think about is that the Durban strikes happen in Durban because of the dock workers. That the Durban strikes happen in Durban because of the dock workers. I was just looking in, last week in Durban at some archives from February of 73, a confidential <coughs> memo among employers in Natal. And they're saying, why do workers suddenly go on strike? And they're like, well, they're poor. <laughs> Their wages are low. Um, inflation is actually sort of bad in 1972-73. Those are obvious, right? Um, but you could say the same thing about Johannesburg or Cape Town or Port Elizabeth, right? And so the, and literally in the next page is like, why Durban, right? And the answer is they didn't have a good answer, right? Um, they had some idea that maybe it's because of um, inter-tribal rivalries, right? Which is a to me, sort of uh, not a good explanation that the Zulus were fighting each other, so therefore they all go on strike. Um, it sounds like actually unity rather than intra-tribal division, right? Um, and so I am saying that these coronation workers made the same demands as the dock workers for the same raise, the same essentially um, up to 20 rand a week, right? I am saying that they used the same tactics now, dock workers had employed this tactic since the 1950s. When they went on strike, they refused to elect leaders or spokesmen, and instead collectively basically met with the employers. Why? Because their first great leader, Zulu Pungulu, had been banned. <laughs> and so going back to the 50s, they basically shout their demands collectively. Now, it's interesting, in 73, the coronation brick workers employed this exact same tactic. And people are like, where is this coming from? Right? And I'm saying, actually, we know where it comes from. We, it comes from the dock workers. Right? They did the exact same thing for 20 years, right? um, where they had the same tactic. Right? We know that they often lived in the same areas and that the dock workers frequently went to the townships, especially on the weekends, to drink beer. Right? Why, why hang out just in the point with a bunch of guys you work with and live with seven days a week? Let's go to the township and actually see some other people. We know that a lot of these people come from the same areas of rural KwaZulu. Right? Um, now, some of this is supposition. I would say you infer a lot of this, right? Um, but to me, it seems like, why Durban? It's actually because of the dock workers, right? Like, the single most powerful and organized and militant group of black workers pre-73, right? Um, yet, the evidence is not entirely clear, right? Like, uh, I mean, I try to hedge on this, but I actually know what I think on these matters. Um, now, would dock workers therefore be central to the black worker rise of activism in the mid-70s, late-70s, and 80s? The answer is no. You would think, given their long history of militancy, that they would be central to the creation of Fasatu, the rise of Fasatu, and other things. But they aren't. Right? They disappear. Right? Um, and so why? I'm suggesting the obvious answer is technology. Right? That containerization basically crushes them in 1977 where 50% literally of the workers are fired inside of three years. And so essentially when most black workers are starting to become more activist, or many, I shouldn't say most, right, that black workers on the waterfront suddenly are weaker because of the introduction of this technology that actually devastates workers in many um, ports across the world. Um, containerization. Um, why I study San Francisco is actually because the West Coast Longshore Union is relatively strong post-container, right, and therefore it's somewhat exceptional. Right? Um, although even this industry 
I would say is somewhat exceptional. Although it takes several decades, this union actually, or I should say dock workers, um, do reorganize in various different unions, and ultimately by 2000 are members of a union called SATAWU, the South African Transport and Allied Workers Union. And in 2008, just to sort of be the other half of the equation, like I talk about San Francisco being anti-apartheid, let us think about a recent action of Durban dock workers being um, engaging in solidarity activism that is international or transnational. And the obvious one is 2008, when protests rise in, in Zimbabwe, led by Morgan Zangarai, a labor leader who's basically the best chance to defeat Mugabe in uh, open elections in decades, right? And we know that, of course, Mugabe's regime beat the crap out of, killed, murdered um, thousands of people, right, in 2008 um, in order to maintain power. Sangrai himself gets beaten up, right? He withdraws from the second round of the election <laughs> because he's worried about getting killed, probably, uh, but also that to avoid maybe further bloodshed, right? Um, so what do Durban dock workers do? They push the wrong button. Um, in April 2008, this ship from China, loaded with weapons from China, Mugabe is very close to um, the Chinese regime, um, comes in with weapons, and dock workers refuse to unload this ship, right? Um, the members of Satawu, um, with the leader at the time, Randall Howard, giving the, the sort of the buzz uh, phrase, our members refuse to unload the cargo, neither will anyone else touch it, right? Um, this being a clever political cartoon from Joburg in 2008, we remember that Kosatu is part of the tripartite alliance, that essentially, therefore, Kosatu was doing something that was against what Mbeki was doing, right? Because Mbeki was engaged in this quiet diplomacy that didn't seem to be working very effectively, but nevertheless committed to it, not criticizing Mugabe. But what we have is an important Kosatu union, Satawu, actually criticizing Zimbabwe, um, saying instead we are going to strike in solidarity with. Um, I interviewed a couple of the provincial leaders in, in Durban in 2010, and they gave basically the, the socialist line. Um, uh, a, um, Zimbabweans helped us during the fight against apartheid. B, um, these guns are going to be used to kill Zimbabwean workers. So C, we're not going to touch these weapons, right? Um, or that's what we did two years earlier, right? Um, so to get back to what Professor Vanderwaal said at the beginning, dock workers still have power, right? This is 2008, right? Not 1977 or something like that. Um, not always are they going to use it, but nevertheless, dock workers are militant, have this long history of militancy, occasionally engage in transnational solidarity. I would suggest they're more international-minded than the average human being because of the nature of the industry. Um, and um, as Lucien also said, well, he didn't use the statistic, more than 90% of cargo is moved by ships still around the world. Right? Um, now, it might be also moved by truck once it gets to a place, yeah? um, but global trade continues to be shipping-dominated and will continue to be for the foreseeable future, right? Like, uh, no question whatsoever. So um, I don't draw any conclusions beyond, uh, because I'm sort of obvious, right? Um, but uh, hopefully we'll be able to talk about some of these things more, um, if there's any questions.